This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a show devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. This month, we're in the midst of a series on the subject of substance abuse and the impact especially on adolescents and families. My guest tonight is Dr. Dennis Embry, and we'll be talking about prevention, not just of substance abuse, but prevention of all kinds of public health difficulties. Dennis is the CEO and president of the Paxis Institute in Tucson, Arizona. He's involved in all kinds of public health research connected to Johns Hopkins and the National Center on Early Adolescence in Oregon. His work focuses on prevention of substance abuse, violence, mental illness, and health and safety problems among children all over this country. He's been involved in consulting from lots of different organizations internationally, nationally, from Sesame Street to the Pentagon. Dennis Embry, welcome to Self Safe Space. Well, thank you so much, Anne. I know I'll be safe, and I'm looking forward <laughs> to chatting with you about making sure that all of our children in Maine are safe. Exactly. And I want to just start right out by saying Dennis is coming to Maine next week. And we'll be speaking at the South Portland High School in the evening at a parents' forum that everybody's invited to, as well as a day-long conference at Boys to Men. And we'll give you the contact information for that at the end. Dennis, I want to start right out by asking you, how did you get involved in this kind of work? Well, there are two ways that I got involved uh, in this kind of work. Uh, first off, I emerged from a family where all of these things were problematic. I'm diagnosed as educably mentally retarded in the state of Arizona, and my parents were alcoholics mm. and mentally ill, etc. Mm. And um, fortunately, through the kindness of many people, I was able to um, become a productive, useful citizen in the world. And one of the things that it became apparent to me in a transcendental experience was that an inspirational experience that uh, this was my life's work to turn this into very good science and practice that would not just help one child, but would help millions and thousands of families all over this country and indeed in the world. And that I had been given this very great gift of being able to distill knowledge and make it into exceedingly practical recipes that people go, oh, my God, that's so good and so simple. Uh, yes, we should go out and do that. That sounds great. So you know this experience from the inside. Yes, ma'am. So you have a certain credibility. Yep. And the way I talk about it, some people say, well, we need to educate you know, kids about the harms of these things. And I, you know, I joke, I said, okay, so they send somebody into the school to talk about the dangers and harms of violence and alcohol and substance abuse. And I said, now look, uh, my mom and dad were regularly arrested for domestic violence. In fact, at one point in my life, I, when I was working as a young child, um, I actually helped post bond for them. Mm. And, you know, I saw their drunkenness and craziness all the time. So you're going to come in and give me a lecture about the harms? Right. Uh, excuse me, I could tell you about that. What mm. I really want to know is what's important for me to see how can I succeed in the world and transcend these things. And I think as a parent, we need to also know that how broadly these things are happening and that uh, there are new forces that are at work in our culture that are affecting all of our children, and these problems are not limited by any stretch of the imagination to families, you know, in poor neighborhoods or so on. You know, I just I just did a big workshop here in Mississippi, and I asked people to raise their hands. I said, how many of you know a middle-class or upper-middle-class family that's completely intact and a healthy family that has a child with a mental illness or substance abuse problem? 
everybody raised their hand. Everybody. Mm. And uh, so like, it's no longer happening to them; it's happening to us. Yeah, it's right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, spiritually and pragmatically, it's important for every state to pay attention to the status of our uh, children. And you know, so on my talk, I'm going to be uh, emphasizing how these large cultural forces are actually eroding our ability as individual uh, folks to have an impact on our children's life. We, you know, suffer from an illusion that we are going to be in complete control of our children's lives. And when I'm doing uh, clinical work with families, the first thing I look at them and I said, you, "You need to understand one essential truth about being a parent: there is absolutely nothing you can force your child to do." Let me give you an example. Can you force your child to sleep? No. Can you force your child to eat? No. Can you force your child to poop? No. Can you force your child to pee? No. Right. Okay. Now that we got Not that parents don't try, Dennis. Yes, I know. <laughs> Not that they don't expend enormous amounts of energy, particularly yeah. on the sleep. But yes. <laughs> so, you know, what we have to do is very cagey and influence those things. Right. So let's go back to you talked about these new cultural forces. Yes. What are you talking about? Well, in the book and the uh, materials that we're hoping to have been talked about with the Public Broadcasting Corporation about doing, we've called this euthanasia, which are Mm -hmm. conscious policies and practices and unconscious ones that are affecting our kids in multiple ways. And so for the first time in the history of this country, our children and grandchildren will have a shorter lifespan from all causes not just obesity, that is a misnomer, but the same factors that are causing obesity are also causing the increase in mental illness, substance abuse, developmental disorders, learning disabilities, uh, asthma, and other kinds of things. Now, all of that's well understood by, you know, the nerdy side of us who do the work at the National Institutes of Health and uh, like at the National Center on Early Adolescence and at Johns Hopkins, but it's certainly not common knowledge. Uh, outside, and I can give you some very detailed rundowns of what those the forces are. Yeah, give give me a few. Give me some examples. Well, uh, let me give you one example. Um, in 1990, and we call these cultural toxins, policy toxins, um, biological toxins, and physical toxins. We have a cultural toxins, or several that are useful to note. Yeah. In 1990, only five percent of households in America had a television in a child's bedroom. Only 5%. By 1995, just five years later, 26% of all households had a television in a preschooler's bedroom. Uh, 40% had uh, a television in an elementary school child's bedroom. And 60% had a television in a child's bedroom who was a secondary level student, a teenager. Now, right. that, so the those influence numbers, of public, the public media has just skyrocketed in power. Oh, yeah. 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 And now, there are no known studies that show placing a television in your child's bedroom benefits that child. But right. there are a host of studies showing, you know, every television should have a warning sticker on it. Sold. Placing a television in your child's bedroom has been linked to the following public health concerns. Okay, and what are they? They are, your child is much more likely to develop a mood disorder, which includes depression, or bipolar disorder. Mm. Your child is much more likely to develop antisocial personality disorder. Your child is much more likely to be aggressive and or bullied or both. Your child is much more likely to engage in early, unprotected sexual behavior and have early teen pregnancy. All from having a television in the bedroom. Just from having the television. And it doesn't matter what's on the TV. 
Now, how is it different having it in the bedroom versus just watching a heck of a lot of TV? Well, both are harmful, okay? But one of the other reasons that a television in a bedroom is uniquely harmful is that it disrupts sleep patterns. Uh-huh. Now, the average sleep ava- uh, per- availability for children today is somewhere between 45 and 90 minutes less than just two decades ago. And sleep disruption wreaks absolute havoc in the brain of children and, I might add, adults. Right. For instance, for, for me as a psychiatrist working with adults, someone with bipolar disorder, the number one thing we work on is helping them get regular sleep. Absolutely. It's the key ingredient for their mental well-being. Yes. So this makes sense. Yeah, because the, the uh, what are called the steroids get, as you know, get all disrupted. Yeah. And so that means when they go to school, for example, they'll be more irritable or they'll be, you know, sleep. People start yelling at them. They'll be more stressed. Mm-hmm. They'll be more aggressive. They don't. They lose the ability to control impulses. And, you know, for anybody who's got a teenager, they already know, you know, teenagers, uh, that, that thermometer that regulates mood is not very good anyway. Right. And so you wouldn't want it to be, you know, wildly swinging. So just that sleep pattern disruption. And then there's something else that it subtly does, is that when kids are watching the content at night, they're a little bit less likely to be regulated in their content. So they also start to see the world as a dangerous and savage place. Right. And that alters their ability to detect friend or foe in the world, either from peers or other adults. That makes them less able to be resilient in the world and recruit reinforcement for prosociality. That makes other people then push them away. So let's, just to break this down a little bit, so they're, they're exposed to content at night that tends to be more violent and frightening. Yes. They then have less of a sense of safety and trust in the world and approach people more cautiously and lose their ability to tell who is, who is safe? Yes. Uh-huh. Because, they're, because why? How does that link it? How, how do you go from not trusting the world to not being able to tell who is safe? Well, one of the ways is um, this is deeply related to post-traumatic stress reactions. The evidence shows the brain scan literature done at um, Kansas State University shows that watching, for example, violent television in the brain of a teenager explicitly stimulates the same centers in the brain associated with post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. So that resets the vigilant circuitry. And throughout human history, since the invention of uh, stone weapons, the principal predator of humans, and particularly adolescents, have been other people, particularly people in power and authority. Right. So this sets that stage for the emergence of conduct disorders and um, PTSD, and plus the elevation of the stress axis, we're pretty convinced then causes early onset of puberty. Uh Because you have increased level of stress hormones generally circulating, right? right? And we know that puberty has been coming earlier and earlier. Right. And Uh part of what this is, again, this is an evolution. These are all evolutionary mechanisms that are being kicked in. Yeah. Because if a teenage, you know, uh, something like, uh, depending on the society studied, somewhere as much as uh, 20, 30, maybe even 40% of some societies, the young people died as a result of intertribal conflict, homicide. All right. 
And so under those circumstances, early puberty became extremely important in order for your genes to survive. So the, you know, Mother Nature turned on those genes to make Whoopi unprotected Whoopi, make as many babies as possible, and uh, live for the day because tomorrow may not be there. So, you know, of course, people don't, you know, as parents and so on, we don't have a PET scanner attached to our cat, a child, to see, you know, what's happening to their brains. But you can measure it by a number of relatively small things like the heart rate, respiration rate, pupil dilation, and a few other things that if you get to be skillful at noticing those things. You mean if someone's getting very stressed or very scared? Yes. Yes. Right. So so I didn't follow something you said, though. You suggested that evolutionarily there was an advantage to early puberty. Yes. But then, in fact, recently it's becoming even more early. Yes. When there's no longer any evolutionary advantage. In fact, I would argue that people don't have the emotional maturity yet to handle the kind of um, longings that they're having physically. And emo- you know, it just there's a mismatch there that yeah. you're vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely true when we're looking at an individual level, but evolution happens at two levels, or actually several levels. Evolution happens at a gene level. Right. Evolution happens at an individual organism level, and evolution happens in humans at a group level. Yes. And evolution also happens at a cultural level, following all the same principles of selection by consequence, what are called selection by consequences. So, yes, that teenager who has early puberty is like inept at emotional regulation and all the relationship issues and child rearing. Right. But that's not about individual survival. Right. That is about gene survival. All right. I I understand that. Okay. Right. Okay. So I want to keep going. So we've talked a little bit about a cultural force, a very powerful one, and then you mentioned three other forces, policy, biological, and physical. Yep. Could you maybe just name one of each other categories yeah, so you get a well, feel? I'll give you a, sort of a, a policy one. For example, this is both inf- it's sometimes written in formal policy and sometimes written in um, informal policy. For example, we now have a policy, basically, that uh, adults should not touch children in schools and youth-serving organizations. Now, I am assuming that most of the people who are listening to our radio show today took Psych 1. Right. About the importance of touch. uh, Yeah, the importance of touch. Probably they even remember that study, the famous study on Harry Harrell's monkeys. Yes, yes. Well, those monkeys became psychotic not having touch. Right. And we've got really good data now on this on humans. Yes. Thanks to the very classic work by Tiffany Field in Florida. And so the lack of touch decreases serotonergic function and increases stress hormones, which then aggravate all of the brain and neurological development and social competencies. So we know, like we have a brilliant study published showing that just shaking hands and greeting a child coming into a classroom reduces disruptive behavior and difficult behavior and increases engaged learning for a whole hour. Boy, that is profound. Because yeah. in my, I was listening to you thinking, there was a skeptical part of me, Dennis, that was thinking, well, surely if the child gets tons of touch and snuggling and roughhousing at home, they don't really need it from their teacher, but it's clear that that's not true. Right. In fact, we know that the perceived threat or peace in a school has more evolutionary significance uh, after age five than what goes on in the home. Okay. What do you mean by that? Well, um, I have to give you an example to illustrate it. 
let's say a family comes from another country and speaks another language, and they settle here and they have a child. Okay. okay. So that child learns English. The child and maybe the parents speak a foreign language, but they speak English with their foreign accent. What will be the accent of the child? It will not be the accent of the parents. It will be the accent of the peers. Right. So humans are particularly wired to pay attention to their peers because that's the evolutionary context they will inherit. So if a classroom, for example, in first grade has a lot of aggression among the peers, yes, and you drop in a child who's already got a little bit of difficulty with ADHD and aggression, right? if that child is dropped into a peaceful classroom or a aggressive classroom, same school, same curriculum, the child is dropped into the peaceful classroom has only a 1 in 70 chance of having lifetime psychiatric disorders and behavior problems. But if they're dropped into a classroom that has a lot of aggressive peers, in first grade, they have a 1 in 3 chance of having lifetime psychiatric disorders or anti or criminal behavior or substance abuse. Okay, so let me back up because these are really powerful numbers. Yes. So a child that has a little bit of vulnerable a vulnerability already yes. is put into a peaceful classroom. At what age are we talking? First grade. At first At grade. So for an entire year is surrounded by calm, respect, peacefulness. It's protective for life, for all, all forms of psychiatric illness. Yes. But if they're surrounded by aggression and threat and disruption for a year at the age of six to seven, it will have a lifelong 33% chance of some kind of psychiatric difficulty. Right. So it's very early, is very powerful. Yep, that's part of the work that I'm involved with at Hopkins. Yeah, so I want to ask you more about that in a minute. I want to finish. So the biological and physical, give me just a brief answer, and then we're going to take a quick break. Okay. Uh, biological one is the uh, lack of omega-3 in our diet and the rapid increase of omega-6 in our diet, which is found in all the snack foods, that soybean oil, cottonseed oil, and so on. Uh, yeah. Now my colleagues at the National Institutes of Health have mapped that increase um, very elegantly to increases in homicide, bipolar disorder, depression, and developmental disorders, and uh, birth defects. But mm. if we increase the intake of children and adults with omega-3 fatty acid, we significantly reduce the incidence of homicide, aggression. Um, and do you know if that's disorders. DHA or EPA? Uh, DHA plus EPA. So both. It's both of them. DHA, because I know that you can see them broken down into one or the other. Yes. Okay, that's fascinating. And the physical? The physical, uh, one of the things is the lack of movement by our children. Mm. So the, re the eliminate, now people go, oh, well, we eliminated PE. And I said, no, that's not the real culprit. The real culprit is the loss of structured cooperative games and recess, all the hopscotch, the jumping ropes, and the outdoor play that our children used to do. You know, Grandma said, Mom said, go out and play and don't come home until dark or dinner. Right, exactly. <laughs> Um, right. Oh, how parents wish they could do that now. Yes, well, and that's because they're afraid of everybody, and this is in part by the television, and, right. and some of it's not even objective reality, but it is the perception of reality. Yes, that's right. And uh, the linkage, the actual biochemical linkage, is that by not having the physical activity, the brain and the body are not producing, uh, as you know it is, uh, BDNF, right, or brain-derived brain neurofactor. I just call right. it playing out brain fertilizer. Right, miracle go for, for neurons. Yes, That's right. exactly. And on that note, Dennis, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. All right.
This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space. My guest is Dennis Embry, and we're talking about prevention of substance abuse and all kinds of other public health difficulties for adolescents. Dennis, I want to shift now to asking you about the five things that you most recommend that families can do to help protect their kids from some of these difficulties when they're older. I know you have, I know there's more than five, but what are the top five that you would recommend to families? Well, I'm going to focus on five things you can do with a teenager. Okay, I'm going to invite you to speak right into the the speaker. Thank you. All right. So the first thing you can do of a teenager is give the gift of clarity and commitment. Say to your child this distinctly and say it with the kind of love that you first held of your child when you held them for the first time. Say to your child, honey, child, name. I don't want you to be drunk, stoned, in trouble, or high, or in trouble with the law. And say it with love, not accusation. Love. And when your child then goes out you know, on a date, say, honey, have a good time on your date. And remember, I don't want you to be drunk, stoned, high, or in trouble with the law. When your kids go out to the mall or go off to some event, tell them to have a good time. And remember to say to them, honey, I don't want you to be drunk, stoned, high, or in trouble with the law. That's clarity and commitment. And they're going to say to you, oh, Mom, oh, Dad, you don't have to tell me that every single time. Nope, yes, you do, because there's a little tiny part in their brain that says, oh, my God, my mom and dad, my grandma, grandpa, my aunt or uncle, whomever, really do care about me. That's the gift of clarity and commitment. And there's research to show that that dramatically reduces the probability that your child will get drunk, high, stoned, or in trouble with the law. If you say it every time and you say it with love. Yes. Starting at how old? Oh, I'd start saying that, you know, when they're going off on those adventures, somewhere around fifth or sixth grade. Okay. What's the next Certainly thing? by sixth grade. Okay. And then I would give them the gift of recognition and rewards for doing the right thing. All right. So this is like positive attention as opposed to negative attention. Yes. So when they come home from those things and they're not drunk, stoned, high, or in trouble, give them a reward. Make a mystery box. Let them draw a prize from the mystery box. Or give them a special thing like, hey, you earned an extra, you know, when you go out the next time you can come home an hour later. Okay, so part of me says to myself, well, what about the whole intrinsic motivation as opposed to extrinsic motivation? Um, That is largely a myth. Really? In the science of this, remember that all of these things are governed by dopamine. Dopamine is the molecule of goal, executive function, etc. And pleasure. And pleasure. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get it for the things that you do and get it recognized by people who love you, then you will seek it out in bad sources, and you may seek it out in friends who recognize and reward you and double-dare you for doing the bad thing. Okay. No human... Now, and here's the important thing is, for example, the closest thing there is to intrinsic uh, motivation right. is playing a computer game. But every time you hit the computer game button and get a target, you get a release of dopamine. Right. There's all kinds of external rewards. In all kinds. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's monetary or so on. It can be achieving something and doing something. And our children today are not reinforced at significant rates for doing the right thing by their own hand. We have mountains. We have 25 years of data 
showing and, that. Because I, what I'm thinking about as being a goody-goody myself in school was that the really oh, the intrinsic motivation I had was feeling superior, which just sounds horrible to confess. Yes. But I think that that is something that some kids do feel pleasure from. Not yes. that I'm advocating it. Yeah. Well, and that's the kind of like the Sangenfreude, the German thing of, you know, feeling pleasure at somebody else's. Right. It's terrible. Uh, but I think that that gets promoted for, among yes. kids also. And, and this is different because this is about doing a community good. Because not being drunk, stoned, high, or in trouble with the law is benefiting not only your child, but your family, but everybody else in the community. That's right, especially if and you're behind And we notice that. And we've got very good evidence to show. Now, why is that important? Because, like, for example, in Missoula, Montana, which is rated as one of the top three small towns to live in in mm-hmm. the country, yep. 80% of the kids say that no one in the community notices a good thing that they do. Mm. Okay? 50% of the kids say that no teacher notices a good thing that they do. And the kids report that 75 that 75% of the time that their peers would judge them ill for doing effort for doing good. Right, so that's very concerning. You know, and Dennis, so that's dangerous to our society. That's, that's very never dangerous. That is very dangerous. And if that's happening in Missoula, Montana, where 40% right. of the people have a college degree or higher higher degree and you know they got 16 kids per classroom, uh, we're in trouble. We are. In the country. We are. Uh, so now that's one thing. Okay. And, and we have, you know, when we give my talk, I'm going to detail out how you do the mystery motivator, how you do those things, because one of the things you don't want to do with adolescents is do predictable rewards. You want to do unpredictable rewards, which in fact builds long-term delay, willingness to stick it out, willing to persevere and to try the hard things. Okay. Then you want to give the gift of good sleep. Okay, so this is number three. Number three, okay. take out the television from the bedroom. Good sleep, TV okay. out of bedroom. Number right. one. Number two, all cell phones and electronic devices go on curfew cell at phones. like 9 o'clock. There is right. no reason to be having telephone calls after 9 o'clock. All right. No civilized people do that. <laughs> okay. All right, yes. And then, so that means the telephone isn't like, oh, I'll take the battery out, Mom. No, that means they give you the cell phone. Okay. Because otherwise they're going to be texting under the covers. And right. I would rather have them read a book with a flashlight under the covers. Exactly. <laughs> All right, in the interest of time, we're going to have to wrap up in a minute. Okay. So then the other thing is give them uh, brain food. That's like increasing their omega uh, three in their diet that's yep. found in fish, and then the f- uh, fifth one is tell other parents about these five simple gifts, so that we create a word of mouth chain that all of our children are protected. Okay, now you mentioned another one to me on the phone when we were talking about having this interview that I want to ask you about because it intrigued me, which was teaching children when they're very young to voluntarily inhibit their impulses. Yes, and that was intriguing because I have never heard about that. And yes. So just give me one sentence about that. Well, that's that's the work at Johns Hopkins, where we are teaching teachers and parents to say thank you for self-control. We know all about, as parents and teachers, thanking kids when they do some good, but we don't know how to thank the children for not doing bad. Mm-hmm. And that's the heart of voluntary control. So we have this little game thing where we reward kids for not disrupting the classroom, not getting into trouble, not picking fights, etc., and we reward them as a team. So, for example, a parent can do that by having setting a timer when the two kids are playing, you know, and, and they normally get into fights. Yep. Set the timer, and if they don't, 
have a fight and pick on each other, they get a joint reward. That's teaching voluntary control. As an example, and teamwork in a way. So Pardon? we're, we're going to ha- teamwork. We're going to have to stop in one minute, Dennis. But before we do that, you also have some really provocative ideas about things kids can do in their own community that will also get them some of that reward, positive feedback for making a contribution. And I wondered if you might just close by letting us know a little bit about that. Yeah, several things. Uh, we suggest that young people form teams and go reinforce adults for doing the right thing in the community so that they reward and publicize adults who don't sell tobacco and alcohol in the community to mm. the public, not the stores that did, but the stores that did the right thing. We also suggest that as a, pu- as a public gesture, 